Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some spread all around. There's a bunch of them under the chairs, and you can grab one, and we'll be on page 926 uh, in those black Bibles, page 926. It's Acts chapter 17. We're continuing the series that we've called Meet Jesus, and we've been trying to challenge our preconceived notions about who Jesus really is. We're trying to reconsider um, who's the real Jesus. We have all these kind of imaginations of who Jesus is or who we want Jesus to be, but what do the scriptures actually present Jesus as? And so we've looked at portraits of Jesus in Luke, and now we're looking at sermons in Acts. We'll have two more weeks in this series in the book of Acts, so I'll be gone the next two weekends. Stephen Watson uh, will be preaching to you the next two weekends, the rest of Acts 17, and then into Acts 18. And then in the summer, we'll be in the book of Genesis. We're going back to the Old Testament for a little while to look at the life of Abraham. And we are going to be studying the life of Abraham as preparation then for moving into the book of Romans in the fall. The book of Romans, as well as Galatians and other places, makes a lot of uh, use of the life of Abraham and the argumentation there in Romans. So we'll be looking at the life of Abraham in the summer, then we'll move on to Romans in the fall. So we'll be praying for those things as we get to them. Pray for us as we prepare. I'd also encourage you to read ahead, kind of familiarize with those stories. So in Genesis 12 and on uh, for the Abraham stories next two weeks, the rest of Acts 17 and the rest of Acts 18. Um, As we look at this passage today, we're calling it Jesus and Resistance. So we see strong opposition in this passage, but we also see different kinds of opposition, different kinds of resistance uh, in this passage in chapter 17. And so we want to think through what that looks like and how uh, there will always be good days and bad days in our life. I think it's especially fitting kind of where we are. We're in this weird cultural shift, right? And there's a lot of uneasiness among different people. It's just kind of a strange time in our culture. Some good things happening, some bad things happening. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, it helps to think through this lens that one of my friends used to use is he would think about culture. And he would say, if you think uh, of the biblical cities of Jerusalem and Samaria and Babylon, you can kind of think of culture in that lens, right? So is your culture Jerusalem, the place where God's word reigns and it's at the center of the city's uh, worship and life? I'd say, yeah, that's probably not who our culture is, right? You could argue maybe our culture has been Samaria. Samaria in the Bible was a place where God's law was acknowledged, his word was read, but it was always kind of a half and half, right? There were some good things and some bad things. Arguably, that's probably more where our culture has been. There's some, been some acknowledgement of God's word, but not a complete um, submission to God's word. What's uncomfortable for some people is it seems to be shifting into this new phase where it's more like Babylon, right? Where God's word is completely disregarded and dishonored. Who knows where things will end up? Don't really know for sure. But in all of those three cities, God was still sovereign. God was still in charge. God was still at work, when cultures honored him, when cultures didn't honor him. God is at work saving a people for himself, uh, teaching us how to trust him and how to love others. So I just want to encourage you that in the book of Acts, we see a model of followers of Jesus being faithful to Jesus in the face of resistance. Sometimes people are going to hate you. Sometimes people are going to love you. um, But that doesn't really change who we are, right? We're going to continue to trust God and try to love each other well. So I think This text is a good one to get us thinking about these things uh, and prepare us for the ups and downs, the good and the bad that come in our lives as we follow Jesus. So I'm going to read from verse 1 in chapter 17. Uh, It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, 
They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So I'm going to quiz you on how to pronounce all those cities after the service, okay? Verse 2 says, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house. I will stop there, leave you hanging in suspense. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us to hear his word today. We'll look at the rest of the story as it unfolds, but let me pray for us. God, we pray that you would help us this morning. We ask for the ability to hear your word. Um, God, I just confess my own heart is more receptive on some days than others, and so we pray that your spirit would meet us here, give us open minds, help us to listen to you, help us to trust that you love us as you've told us through Jesus and in other places. Um, We know it to be true, but sometimes we struggle to believe it. So help us to believe, help us to trust that you're good, that you're enough. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was thinking of this whole idea of resistance and difficulty that sometimes we face as followers of Jesus. I was remembering a famous expedition to Antarctica by a guy named Ernest Shackleton. Have any of you all heard of this guy? Ernest Shackleton, some of you have heard of him maybe. He was a famous explorer. Um, About 100 years ago, I think it was, that he actually crossed Antarctica. So he's the first one to cross it. There are others that had like made it to the South Pole or other markers, you know, but his fame was in crossing it, right? Um, And it was a terrible, harrowing, difficult journey. And there's this famous story that goes around about an ad that he placed in a London newspaper to recruit guys to come on the journey with him. It's a great illustration. I've actually done the research and it turns out the ad itself probably wasn't placed, okay? But um, we can find a lot of corroborating evidence that he said these kinds of things and we know he was a real man. The expedition really happened. We just don't think it was a classified ad in the paper. We think there was probably a verbal thing that he said. But, but this is how it's, how it's restated, again, which is corroborated by the history. It says, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. So it's not exactly the most inviting recruitment piece, right? I want you to come and die. Uh, I had a pastor friend that said in the past that in the different lives of a church, sometimes we're inviting people to come and see, sometimes we're inviting people to come and die. Jesus made both kinds of appeals in the Gospels. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. He's gentle. He's humble. We can trust him. We can come to him when we're brokenhearted. He loves us. But Jesus also said, count the cost. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be your best life now. It's not going to magically fix every problem in your life. Your your financial problems aren't going to instantly go away. Your relationship problems aren't going to instantly go away. But you can trust that he's enough in the midst of the resistance and pain and suffering and difficulty that this world has to offer. And so it's this invitation to follow Jesus, to trust Jesus, even in the face of resistance in this life. And I think this text is a great example of of Paul living that out. Paul loved Jesus. Paul thought Jesus was worth it. He wanted to share that Jesus with other people. Sometimes people said, 
this is great. I love you, Paul. I love your Jesus. Other times people said, I'm going to kill you, Paul. And they would chase him out of town. So, so the first thing that we see is the first city that he comes to here in this story. We see persuasion and attack. We see both sides of it. We see Paul persuading people that Jesus is good. And we see Paul repelling other people that attack him. They want to kill him, that chase him out of town. So look again uh, at the story. This time we'll pick it up. Um, we'll just pick it up in verse 4. So he'd been persuading them that Jesus is the Christ, that the gospel is found in him, that his death saves us. And it says in verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. So some were persuaded and some attacked, right? Some were persuaded and followed, some attacked. Look at verse 5. The Jews were jealous, taking some of the wicked men of the rabble. So these are people like that hung out in the marketplace that could be stirred up, kind of like a rent-a-mob thing you see in protests sometimes today. And so they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Who's Jason, you're asking? Well, kind of from context here, we, we learn that Jason was a guy that Paul and the companions were staying with, right? So Jason had a big house, had extra rooms, and was kind of the man of peace that had welcomed them into town. So Jason gets in trouble just by his association with Paul. So they drag Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, uh, this is in verse 6, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Um, I've heard a lot of famous preachers say they actually were making the world right. You know, the Bible story is that the world was turned upside down when Adam and Eve said, we'll take the gifts, but we don't want you, God. And that that's what turned everything upside down. That's why the world is glorious but broken. So the world's upside down, and Paul, through the gospel, is trying to make it right side up. But they're saying, no, he's turning it upside down. It's upsetting when we hear the gospel. It changes everything for us. Verse 7 says, and Jason has received them. And they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They were upset. Verse 9 says, When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It goes on to say in verse 10, Then the brothers sent Paul and Silas away. They, they sailed on to the next town. So we see this kind of um, pattern in the ministry of Paul that I think we can learn a lot from ourselves. And here's how the pattern goes. You go to the most obvious place of spiritual seeking first, right? We see the synagogue pattern. The synagogue was the place where Jews gathered and read uh, the scriptures. They read the Old Testament. They would sing psalms together. It's very much the pattern for how Christians worship together, singing psalms, reading scripture. That's what they would do in the synagogue. And so there would be Jews that were born into this, and then there would be God-fears, which would be pagans that came and were kind of like done with their paganism, hadn't fully converted yet to Judaism and gone the whole way, but they were there listening, they were participating. And we have the same dynamic in churches today, right? We have people that are completely bought in, that are a part of everything that's going on, full partners in what we're doing here. And then we've got other people that are just kind of watching and seeing and, and maybe singing along, maybe listening, considering the claims of the scriptures. And so that was always where Paul went first to preach the gospel. Here's a place where people are spiritually seeking. Let's go tell them about Jesus. And we would see then this pattern where he would reason from the scriptures. He would say, this Old Testament that prophesies and promises that Jesus is coming, well, that prophesies that a Messiah is coming, is fulfilled specifically in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament talks about. So he'd reason through the scriptures with them. And this was his pattern, but his pattern often ended in what I would call step three here. Um, people would try to kill him and he would have to run away. 
So he would just kind of move from town to town. This was his pattern. This is what following Jesus looked like for Paul. Come to the place where people are spiritually seeking. Reason with them from the scriptures. People try to kill him. He runs away to the next town. And I know most of you may not be called to be missionaries. Uh, You may not be called even to be a preacher. But I still think this is kind of a pattern for our life as Jesus followers. may not look exactly like this. But I think God calls us through word and through lifestyle to testify to who Jesus is. We talk to people that are spiritually interested about who Jesus is, how good he is, how much uh, hope he gives us through his death and resurrection, how he takes away our sins, how he gives us life. We talk to people that are interested. We reason from the scriptures. They hate us. We run away, right? There, there's a little pattern here. Now, it's, always, it's not always that extreme in our life, but I'm kind of setting this up to help you to see that the scriptures see this as kind of normative. Again, that some people are going to be persuaded and others are going to attack, that there's always going to be this mixed reaction. I think we kind of swing in a binary way. We want to be either like hardcore fundamentalists that just try to be as weird as possible so that everybody hates us, right? That's one way to live out your Christian life. Just say, my identity is in being weird, and I'm going to try to make people think I'm weird and not like me. That's, That's one way to follow Christ, I guess. Or the other side is I'm going to be everybody's best friend. I'm going to compromise the message. I'm going to say whatever I need to say so that people will be my friend, right? Persuasion. We see this, this kind of both and continually going on in Scripture. Paul's reasoning with this from the Scriptures. He's saying, Jesus is good. You want to follow him. He has love for you. People are persuaded, but there are other people that are not persuaded. There, there's always a mix. There's always both. And we can't necessarily control that. And so again, as, as culture is weird and things are swirling around some things some of you are upset about other things others of you are upset about we have a diverse enough congregation i know there's some things in the news that you're like that's awesome and other people are like that's terrible the world's falling apart and we find ourselves on different sides of some of these specific issues but but we need to know that in the ups and downs of culture that we can trust jesus that he's still in control and that there will always be a mix of reactions there will always be some people that are persuaded that jesus is good and other people that will want to attack the claim that Jesus is good. As I was thinking about this rabble, this mob that was stirred up, I was remembering the Frankenstein movies, the old Frankenstein movies. Have any of y'all seen those where there's like the, the torches and pitchforks marching towards the castle, right? Um, I think in Beauty and the Beast, the Disney cartoon, they had kind of a similar scene. It's like a, it's like a theme, right, that gets played out in different movies and stories. So I grabbed a picture here of the angry mob going after Frankenstein, um, And sometimes we can feel like the angry mob is turning on us. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, like you're in a group of friends. Somehow it slips out that you're a Christian or you have a different kind of moral value than other people, and all of a sudden you're Frankenstein. Has has that ever happened to you? No, I've I've felt that way, and I'm like, oh, wow. Sorry I said that, you know? Um, And sometimes you feel like you're under threat, and sometimes you feel like you're a monster. I want to encourage you and... This is not really encouraging us. It's kind of encouraging. Uh, Jesus said in the Gospel of John that they're going to hate me because they hated, they're going to hate you because they hated me first. That, that that will happen sometimes. Again, not all the time. We don't have to seek that. We don't make that our identity, right? People are going to attack us. I'm going to be a monster. Um, it can be disappointing. It can be discouraging. But just know that that might happen sometimes as you follow Jesus and that, that Jesus is worth it. I want to explain why I think that people hate the message of Jesus. Um, religious people. A lot of you are religious people, right? You're in a religious place. I think why religious people hate the message of Jesus is because it implies that we're not good enough. 
So if you're a religious person that's tried very hard to be uh, a good person, a great neighbor, take care of your business, do things right, be honest, be hardworking, be upstanding. If you're that kind of person, the message of Jesus says it's not enough. The message of Jesus says, that's, that's great that you've worked so hard to be so good, but it's not enough. God is absolutely holy, and no amount of good works can make you as perfect or as glorious as God himself. We're all sinners. We all have fractured hearts. We all still struggle with selfishness, even if you're religious and you're an all-American good guy, great neighbor. So that can make people hate the message of Jesus. That can make religious people hate the message of Jesus because it's challenging to us. It says you're not, you're not good enough. And all your goodness, it's not enough. You need Jesus to stand in for you. I think non-religious people often hate the message of Jesus for, really for similar reasons. It's a little different for non-religious people. They would say, how dare you imply that there will ever be a judgment of anything anybody ever did? And so non-religious people can't stand the message of Jesus because it implies there's a judgment. It implies that there's a perfect standard, that there's an objective other, the God of the universe that created the world and gets to tell us how to live. How dare us say that when we should just get to do what we want? That's the, the non-religious hatred of Jesus. Those of us that believe in Jesus, we came to terms in kind of an existential situation of kind of freak out moment of recognizing, wow, I'm not good enough, or wow, I will be judged, but recognizing that Jesus stood in for us. Jesus was good enough. When all of our religious works weren't good enough, Jesus was good enough. He was perfect. He always said the right thing. He always did the right thing. Not only that, but Jesus took our judgment. So it's this double beauty for both the religious and the non-religious that Jesus absorbed the judgment of God on the cross, dying for our sins, but he also gives us his perfect righteousness and his resurrection life, and so we have hope in Jesus. So that makes the message of Jesus beautiful to those of us that are believers. A verse that I think describes this process and how Jesus is uh, persuasive to us is in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's kind of a complex sentence, but he's saying God shines this light in our hearts so we see just how awesome Jesus is. We see how beautiful he really is. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And that's what it is to be persuaded. And so we, whether you're a preacher or a missionary or just an ordinary uh, Christian going about your business, trying to honor God in your daily life, we are all to testify to who he is in the things we say and the things that we do. We're all called to be a part of his team. And as we fulfill that calling, we're all going to run against persuasion and attack. Some people will be persuaded. They'll see the beauty of Jesus. Other people will attack. Other people will say, no, that's, that's disgusting. I don't, I don't like that. So I guess the application really is just don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Some people will actually be persuaded, right? So don't give up sharing the hope we have in Jesus because some people will actually say, yeah, Jesus is awesome. And they'll believe. And God's going to use you in that process. And also don't be surprised when there's an attack, when there's a pushback, when there's resistance. Maybe you won't be chased out of town with torches and pitchforks, right? It may not look like that, but it might. But you know resistance will come. You know resistance will come. The next thing that we see as the story unfolds is we see a different kind of resistance. So I'm calling this receiving 
but examining. So this next city, uh, the author Luke purposefully contrasts city number two with city number one. So he was in Thessalonica, now he's going to go to Berea, and he's going to see people receiving, but also examining and kind of wrestling with the message. So let's look at this. This is a famous passage, verses 10 through 12. It says it this way, um, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So this is the next city. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So he's repeating the pattern again, right? The Jewish synagogue, they're talking about the Bible. He's going to go tell them about Jesus. Verse 11 says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so a little detail there, uh, predominantly Christianity in the first century grew among the middle classes and the poor because they were honored as fully human in the gospel, right? So it wasn't just a religion for rich people, but there were still rich people and upstanding important people, and that's what's described here. So all kinds of people uh, are a part of the Christian movement. All races, all classes, all kinds, all skills, and we see that testified to here. So some women of high standing as well as men, uh, many people therefore believed. What really stands out here is the contrast between Thessalonica and Berea, right? He says uh, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. So this is what it looks like to be more noble Guys in Thessalonica, uh, they received with eagerness. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now, this is interesting because like as a teacher, there's a part of me, right? The egotistical part of me as a teacher that just wants you to say, Dave, that's awesome. I will follow blindly anything you say, right? There's a part of me that wants you to do that. But biblically, I'm constrained to desire really for you to be more like the Bereans who examine and test and kind of pull and kick the tires and and look at the scriptures yourself and say, is this really true? Is this really what the scripture says? That's a healthy congregation. So this is pulled out a lot of times. This kind of becomes a classic verse on saying, this is what Christians should be like. Christians should be the kind of people that actually test what is proclaimed. So when someone speaks the scripture to you, a pastor, a teacher, Sunday school teacher, small group leader, any leader says, this is what the scripture is about. You should test it. You should say, you know, let me see. Let me look. Let me see if it's there. It says they were examining. They were kind of critically judging, pulling apart the text. This is um, very strong language for what we would call study. The word here is examination. There's a lot of different words you could use for saying, is this really true? It says they were trying to see if these things were so. I have a picture here of someone studying the Bible. I want to encourage All of you, and this almost seems like it doesn't need to be said because we're a Bible church, right? And we offer a lot of Bible studies, but I just want to encourage a lot of you maybe haven't taken the next step of personally studying the Bible. Just encourage you to take that next step. Now, granted, we're all kind of on different parts of the scale. I I would say I'm probably on the love to study the Bible end as a Bible teacher, right? Like, so I'm probably a little extreme. Um, For me in my own life, when I was working on my undergraduate degree, at Texas A&M, I decided to study Greek. No whoop, Texas A&M. Thank you. Okay. I was working on my undergraduate degree, and I decided I want to study Greek because I want to know the Bible better, right? I had to take a language as a liberal arts major. I'm going to study Greek, right? Uh, I didn't even know yet that I was going to go into ministry at that point. But um, so that's kind of extreme, right? I wouldn't say necessarily that every Christian needs to study Greek, but if you want to, hey, that's a great idea, right? But I would say, what's the next step? Just think of it that way. 
what's the next step for you to grow in the area of being like a Berean, someone who examines the Scriptures and sees if these things are so? How do you pick apart the text? How do you actually wrestle with it? Do you just receive everything blindly and just say, well, Dave said so. That's good enough for me. Or do you test it? Do you look at it? Do you go back and reread the Scriptures? What's the next thing you need to learn? What are the things that you struggle to understand now when you read the Bible? What's the most confusing parts of it? How can you take next steps in your understanding of how God's Word is put together, the story, how it flows? Here we've got a picture of somebody. You see she's got a pen on her Bible there. She's got a pad of paper, right? Like here, here's what probably sounds very irreligious or wrong to some people. You can actually write in your Bible. Did you know that? I know some of you think it's wrong. It's not actually wrong. There's no verse that says it's bad to write in your Bible. It's actually a good study habit, right? Like underlining keywords and kind of drawing a circle back to, in the context and say, hey, he's talking about this word. He was just talking about that earlier, 10 verses ago, and making little arrows and highlighting, doing things like that. That'll help you to wrestle with the Scripture, taking notes, digging into it a little more deeply. But one of the things that I would say a lot of you need to do, and this is even if you don't have kids, is buy a good children's story Bible. Buy a good children's story Bible. Even if you don't have kids, just buy it and say, well, it's for my nephew or my niece or whatever, but then read it. And, and the two best ones, uh, I would say 90% of them are terrible. The, the two best ones that I really like are the Jesus Storybook Bible and the Big Picture Story Bible. Those two are really helpful for helping us to see how Jesus is the main point of the whole Bible. So it's a really helpful story Bible um, it, it teaches you what is called the redemptive historical method. And so you can read your children's Bible and say, I'm learning the redemptive historical method and kind of feel like a, a nerd as you read the children's Bible, right? There's this important understanding that Scripture is the history of redemption. It's got this one story. It's 66 books. It's all these different authors in different times and in different languages, but one story of this God who's saving us, who's coming after us in this broken world. And so that's a great way to get started. Uh, after you've mastered those uh, children's story Bibles, I'd encourage you maybe to get a good adult study Bible. I would say the three best ones that I know of, there's a lot of different ones, but the three best ones are the NIV Study Bible. It's just called NIV Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible. Um, and there's a new one that's just come out with the ESV called the Gospel Transformation Bible that, again, is trying to help you see that Jesus is the main point of the story. But those are all pretty good at helping you to understand what's under the text, what's actually going on there, who Jesus is, what the history is, what the language means, what the archaeological finds are, you know, just kind of helping you get under that and understand better what the text says. Another study Bible I encourage you to get is a chronological study Bible. Any of you ever heard of one of these? Chronological study Bible, I've talked about it before in here, and that's a Bible that takes it out of library order and puts it into historical order, right? So our current Bible, the way it's arranged, is by type of book, right? So we have history books together, and so some of those are in order, but then we have prophecies, and we have wisdom books, and we have letters, and they're kind of arranged by type of writing, uh, but a chronological Bible takes that and breaks it up and puts it in order, like how the events unfolded, which is really helpful because it can be, I mean, it's a big book. It could be hard to understand when it's, when it's out of chronological order. So it's another study program that's really good for you. Another thing I would say couple more things, and then we'll move on from this point, is to actually join a group. I mean, we showed you in the bulletin earlier, we have these bulletins, we have small groups, we have Bible studies, we have classes. Join one of these groups where you can get together with other people, you can examine the scriptures together. It's a really good habit to say, I agree with you on point A and B, but I don't agree with you on point C. I don't see that in scriptures. And you actually kind of have some healthy debate 
and wrestle through that. You, you pray for each other. You care for each other. You work through the text and begin understanding better what it actually says as you do that in community. Finally, what I want to say is um, a weakness sometimes that takes place in Bible churches and Reformed churches is we can be all head, but we can be weak on heart and hands, right? So we, can, we could be the Bible study church, but we don't actually love people. We could be the Bible study church, but we don't actually have joy in our life. We could be the Bible study church, but we don't actually practice patience, which the Bible says that King James gets it the best. It's long-suffering. It's part of what we're called to as, as Jesus followers is long-suffering, joy and patience and obedience. So the way I would say it is this. Try actually doing what the Bible says. Don't just learn it, but begin practicing. Begin living it out. That's one of the best ways to learn something is to actually do it. Learn it with your body. Learn it with your heart, not just your mind. It's not just facts. It's never meant to just be facts and knowledge. So, so we'll move on from here. We want you to be a Berean. We want you to study. We want you to receive, but also examine. Receive the word, but, but wrestle with it. The next thing that we see is summed up in a phrase that occurs here in the next part of the story, they came there too, okay? Um, so things kind of went well in Thessalonica, and then things went really bad, right? There was a mob. They had to leave and go to the next town. Then things went better in Berea. Luke, again, compares them. Verse 11, they were more noble than in Thessalonica because of the way they wrestled with the text and, and chewed on it. But then they, the bad guys came there too, right? So, so let's look at verses 13 and following. Kind of the rest of the story here. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating, stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And so that gets us ready for next week's story. Stephen will share with us about Paul in Athens. But we see again this pattern, right? Like even when things just seemed like they were going so great, he had this like all these Bible studies happening and they were studying the scripture and they were using highlighters in their scrolls and they were just getting after it, right? Examining the scriptures. They were chewing on it. They were receiving. They were growing. But then the bad guys came there too. And so we kind of come back to this, this whole big idea that there continues to be resistance. And the question I have as I read this, because in my own life, I, I get weary of things not going the way I want them to go. I'm sure that never happens to you, but for some of us, when we suffer and when we run into difficulties in life, we just get weary. We get tired of it. I look at Paul and I'm like, man, he just kept going. Like he never stopped. Like how did he continue to trust Jesus in the midst of resistance and pain and, and suffering? How did he keep going? I was tempted to think of him in, in light of, of Rocky Balboa. Any of you see the original, like the one Rocky movie with good acting, the original one, 1976? Uh, my dad used to play the, the theme song all the time, so I grew up listening to this over and over again. Um, but there's a picture of, of Rocky all beat up, and part of the beauty of Rocky, and Rocky won before he became a superstar, but in Rocky won, he was like a second-class boxer that just went the distance, Right? It was all about his perseverance. It was all about his ability to suffer and keep going. That's what Rocky I was. And it's interesting, in the movie, Rocky says that he wants to persevere. He wants to go to the distance 
to prove that he's not a bum, to prove that he's not a bum. And so I think there's a temptation that you might have, that I might have when I try to imitate the life of Paul. I see Paul facing continual persecution and difficulty, and I see how Paul perseveres. Life is going hard for me. I think, well, if I'm like Paul, then I could prove that I'm not a bum, right? That I could, I could prove that I could do it, and then maybe God would be pleased with me. And I think you might have that same temptation too. You might think that perseverance and difficulty in your life and being long-suffering is an opportunity for you to prove that you're not a bum, for you to win God's love because you made it, because you went the distance. What I want you to understand is that it's the exact opposite of how the gospel works. Paul persevered because Jesus had made him his own, because Jesus had grabbed hold of him. And it was violent, and it was a big turnaround, but Jesus grabbed hold of him, and he said, Paul, you're going to be on my team. Paul, you belong to me now. And and that's what Jesus offers to all of us in the gospel. God is not, not standing far away saying, if you persevere, then maybe you'll be worthy of my love. God is coming to us in Jesus, and he's saying, you're not a bum anymore. You're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. I delight in you through Jesus, and because you're mine, you can trust me even when things are bad. You can trust me even when things are terrible, even when those difficulties that you thought you avoided, now they've come here too. They followed you. You moved on to the next town, and they crop up again. And you think, I thought I was done with this. Recognize that you don't persevere to prove yourself to God. You, you persevere because God's already proven himself to you. Because God already took hold of you and said, you're mine. I love you. There are going to be good days and bad days, but you can trust me. We're going to make it. And you know what? That's one of the major themes of the book of Acts. We kind of sprinted through Acts over the last several weeks. We didn't cover every part of it. We just tried to kind of cover the major sermons in the book of Acts. So I want to go back and cover I just want to read some verses real quick for you, some verses that are summary verses in the book of Acts. Um, and if you'd like to get these, I can show them to you. Uh, I can just leave my notes up here if you want these because I'm going to go through them real quickly. So these are summary verses that, that show that even in the midst of difficulty, Jesus prevails. It encourages us to keep going because God is faithful and he knows what he's doing. Acts 2, 46 to 47 says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. The church kept growing. That's the beginning of the book of Acts. Acts 6, 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many became obedient to the faith. There's more. There's many. There's multiplying. There's growth. Acts 9, 31 says, The church had peace and was being built up, and it multiplied. Acts 12, 23 through 24 says, The word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 16.5 says the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Acts 19.20 says the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And then we come to the very end of the book right before Paul dies and it says Paul was there and he welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So there are these summary verses saying it kept growing. God's word kept working. Jesus kept prevailing. The church kept multiplying in the midst of all these difficulties. In the midst of all this resistance, the church keeps going forward. Jonathan Parnell is a pastor up in Minnesota, and 
This is what he has to say about these summary statements. He says it this way. These statements help move the story along, and they highlight Jesus' work by his Spirit through his people. Even in the midst of conflict and opposition, the Word of God prevails. The church continues to increase. The gospel advances. This is meant to give us hope. This is meant to give us hope. Hang in there, church. He's got this thing. Those were Parnell's words, and I think they're helpful for us to remember that even though things aren't going right today, even though everything is falling apart, God is still in control. There will be times when we feel like cultural winners. There will be times when we feel like cultural losers. But we're always winners because we belong to Jesus. We're on his team. And we're going to have good days and bad days, but we can trust that he's faithful. He proved that to us by dying on the cross, by rising from the dead. And so if we trust him, we know things are going to be okay. We can keep going. We can persevere. I'll, I'll close with these words. Paul says this. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else is lost compared to knowing Jesus. He says, I count all these things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What Paul pulls together in Philippians 3 is that we know the supernatural power of the resurrection in the midst of trouble and difficulty and pain. That I may know the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So again, Paul's not pressing on to win God's love. Paul's pressing on because Jesus has already made him his own. That's where I want to end it for us as well. Jesus has made you his own. So press on. Let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you that you've adopted us. You brought us into your family. You pulled us from different neighborhoods, different places, different kinds of families. You pull us all together and you make us your family in Christ. You saved us. You took away our sin. You give us your righteousness. You give us your resurrection life. Thank you that you've made us your own. Help us to live that out. Help us to trust you. Help us to walk with you faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.